You don't have to feel this way. Okay. Why is there such a mess in here? And why is the mail on the table? I told you I don't like to look at bills while I'm eating. It gives me indigestion. What's for dinner anyway? Macaroni again? I just got home 20 minutes ago. I, I had to pick up Jimmy from soccer and, and get you dry. Are you kidding me? You had 20 minutes of mac and cheese the best you can do? I'm not eating this garbage. You eat it. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go meet up with the guys with some burgers. Enjoy your mac and cheese. No matter how hard I try, nothing I do is ever good enough. What am I going to do now? Relationship, set yourself free. For more info, go to NMC. For more information. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of oh, this happened to my brother. This. They start telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when you were a little kid. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American history. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again, and what our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. And I want to take a second to thank all of our listeners. Thanks for joining us, guys. We're so glad you came back. Or if you're here for the first time, we're not always this crazy. Yes, Just kidding. Yes, Just we kidding. Yes. We totally are. Please stick around. That's weird. It gets a little strange sometimes. It's fun. It's fun. <laughs> We want to remind everybody that you can reach out to us on Twitter at Just a Story Pod. We always post interesting articles, pictures, things related to the show the week following the episode coming out. And then you can also just search through the feed and see stuff from past episodes if you're catching up. And I want to remind everyone that we do have the Just a Story hotline. If you want to call in and talk to us about your feelings, how your day was, why is your mom so mean to you, whatever it is. Or if you want to talk about urban legends, that's cool too. Yeah, that's what I thought it was for. It's kind of for me being so sad and lonely and not having any friends. You have more friends than me. (laughs) Yeah, no, honey. If you want to call the helpline, you can. (laughs) So we would love to hear about your hometown legends. We'd like to hear about the scary stories your mom used to tell you to make you behave, whatever it is. Call, leave us a story. If it sparks our curiosity, we might research it and do an episode about it. And that number is 512-222-3375. So now that we have our emergency urban legend line, today we're going to talk about the legends surrounding bluebeards. Bluebeards. You know, guys with blue beards. Guys with blue beards. What makes a man's beard turn blue, Jacob? You can turn your skin blue... By taking too much colloidal silver. Does it work on facial hair? Not from the images I've seen. But there really are like families. Oh, I think they're in Kentucky. I should have looked this up. (laughs) (laughs) Where there's a lot of colloidal silver they've taken. It will literally turn your skin blue. Google it. Okay. But this legend, the legend of Bluebeard, is a very old folk tale. And as with everything we talk about, it's changed over the years. Bluebeard is a very old folk tale, and it was originally written down by Charles Perrault. Is he Ross Perrault's cousin? No, it's spelled differently, like the French way. It's like Perrault. Yeah. I'm sure everyone mispronounces his French last name all the time. Oh, I can't imagine why that would happen to anyone. It's not frustrating. At all. And Charles Perrault is one of the godfathers of... Folklore. And fairy tales, especially. He is the fairy godfather. He's the fairy godfather. You know, a lot of people like to say that the Grimm brothers kind of started this writing down of folk stories and folk traditions, but he was actually a good almost 100 years before them. Now, there is a difference, and I do want to take a moment to define why the Grimm's are held up by folklorists as the original folklorists, because they were going out into the squalor and the poor community and collecting these stories and getting more than one type and writing them down and cataloging them more studying and Peral was composing these like quasi literary flights of fancy for the french court and it is for a different audience and kind of for a different purpose right where the Grimm's were working on like a true nationalistic idea the volk movement yes everyone wants to build up germans nationality 
Well, yeah, let's keep doing that, guys. Let's see how that goes. They're really responsible for Hitler. No. I don't think so. <laughs> Perot was writing for the French court and was very much trying to create these morality tales. And he ended each story writing it out for you in a little couplet. Moral. Colon. Literally. Yeah, and, but it rhymed. It was a right. rhyming couplet, which is even better. Yeah, no, it is. And um, so when was he active? The 1600s. Okay. And the Grimm's were in the 1700s. Right. Charles Perrault and some of his other very famous stories are Cinderella and Puss in Boots is one of his and Bluebeard and various other macabre and fanciful little ditties for the French court. Yeah, but while Grimm's were all very macabre, this was by far Perrault's darkest tale. It absolutely is. Would you, would you like me to tell you the story of Bluebeard? I would love to hear you tell it in your creepy voice. My creepy voice. I have a creepy voice. Once upon a time, in a little village not very far away from here, there lived a maiden whose mother had died when she was young. She grew up with... Because this is a fairy tale and everyone's mother has to die when they're young. She grew up with a sister and two brothers. And the day came when the nobleman came down from his castle to wander around the town. He happened upon the young lady... And he took quite a shine to her. Now she'd heard stories about this man, famous for his long blue beard. He'd married several women, and none of them had ever come down from the castle. But he was intensely charming, and he seemed to offer a great deal of hope, promise, and wealth. So the little maid decided to take him up on his proposal, and she soon moved to the castle to become his wife. Not long after she moved in, only a day or so, he had to away on business. But she had invited all of her friends and family to come and see all the fine furniture in the house. And as they were on their way, Bluebeard pulled the little maid aside and said, Here are the keys to the castle. These will open all the wardrobes, all the doors, all the chest, and you may have any or everything you like from within them. All my fine furniture and tapestries, all my riches and wealth, it's all yours. Just don't use this one. Just don't use this one little key. And she looks at him questioningly and she says, What's it for? He says, This is for my closet. This is my own personal key. Now, I've been very clear with you. I've explained to you that you must not open my closet. And if you do, I will be justly angry and show you how you've made me feel. So he leaves to run his errand after that incredibly creepy aside. And she sets about unlocking all the cabinets and all the closets and all the chests for her family to come and peruse all of his fine things. And they do, and everyone's excited. Now, while everyone's there, and there's a hubbub going on in the castle, she becomes completely distracted by her curiosity. And she can't help but want to open the closet. So she takes out the key ring and passing all the fine gold and silver keys comes to the little small rusted one. She tiptoes downstairs to the basement and opens the door. When she does, she sees the bodies of all of the previous Mrs. Bluebeards hanging from hooks on the walls, rotting. The smell is terrible and the floor is covered with blood. She's frightened, and she drops the keys. They fall into the thick, dark, red blood, and she quickly picks them up and hurries back upstairs, horrified by what she found, her husband's secrets. She rinses the keys, and her family leaves, but she notices that the smallest one is stained red, and no matter how many times she washes it or rubs it on her gown or against a cloth, it won't come clean. She finds out that her husband will be returning early and becomes very nervous. He says to her, Where are my keys? When he arrives home, she says, Huh, I must have left them in my room. She goes upstairs and finds the keys and becomes very nervous about his anger. She comes back downstairs and offers them to him and he says, Where's the key to my closet? She says, It must have fallen off. I'll go get it for you. She returns with the key and hands it to him and he looks at it and says, why is this key stained red? And as she begins to explain, he does it for her. He says, 
You went into my closet, didn't you? You found my other wives. Very well. If you want to go in so badly, you shall go back. You shall join them. And she said, oh, please, please have mercy. And he said, no, you must die. And now. And she says, please just give me a moment to say my prayers. And he says, I will give you one half of one quarter of an hour and not a moment more. So she goes up to the highest tower and happens to see her sister walking by. She flags her down and says, you must save me. And her sister runs off to get her two brothers. Bluebeard calls for his wife, and she begs and pleads with him, but he's heartless and has no mercy. His mind is made up. And just as he raises the sword to cut her throat, her brothers come in and kill the man dead. Now, because Bluebeard never kept a wife long enough to have any heirs, his new wife inherits all of his wealth. She gives some to her sister to marry a local village boy whom she's been in love with for years and buys captain's positions for both of her brothers and uses the rest to marry a man who helps her forget about the trauma inflicted by Bluebeard. So if you were to read that excellent tale from a contemporary standpoint, what would you say the moral was? Background checks. Do background checks. <laughs> As we said, Perot likes to write morals at the end. And this isn't going to rhyme because it's translated from French. Sorry. So his moral is, Curiosity, in spite of its appeal, often leads to deep regret. To the displeasure of many a maiden, its enjoyment is short-lived. Once satisfied, it ceases to exist. And always costs dearly. His takeaway is, don't go through your husband's things. Like, don't look at your husband's phone. It's basically his takeaway. <laughs> Once it's abated, it ceases to exist. All right, he offers an alternate. What's the alternate? He does. His another moral is, apply logic to this grim story, and you will ascertain that it took place many years ago. No husband of our age would be so terrible as to demand the impossible of his wife. Nor would he be such a jealous malcontent. For whatever the color of her husband's beard, the wife of today will let him know who the master is. I like that one better. Unless he means that she'll let know that he's the master. Which is really fucked up reading. <laughs> well, I think it's great because he's saying this would never happen now. Right. There's no way. No way. So, as we are wont to do on this show... Let's talk about who this was based on. So he was based on an actual character, it's thought, named Gilles de Ray. Gilles lived in 13th century Brittany. Okay. And he was one to increase his fortune by marriage. I see. He's upwardly mobile, you would say. Definitely. He did have a dark beard that people said was so dark it was blue. Well, it sounded pretty legit <laughs> so far. But I mean, he was what, like going on murder sprees and like keeping weird shit in his house. And like that's where the fairy tale part comes in, right? So in 1432, he was accused of a series of murders of children. There's concern that he'd possibly killed upward of a hundred children. I just feel like we weren't keeping tabs on people or children very well back then. Like, And they really weren't. So he'd snatch these children. Like he'd go to like a shop and he would ask to borrow their boy. You know, their little... Shop boy. Shop boy. To send a message. Or something like that. And he's like, fancy. Right. right. Like he's, he's like very noble and things. Right. He's like an officer in the military. He even fought with Joan, Joan Mark. <laughs> her she's awesome yeah. all right also a little, home crazy. Girl. a little crazy home girl <laughs> badass crazy bitch <laughs> but when he would take these children he'd take them up to his estate and he would pamper them mm. and dress them mm. and he would provide a huge meal with wine mm, for and, children yeah very french and there was a lot of feeding and heavy drinking but then they were taken to a secret upper room where I will let your imagination run wild on the terrible things that happen in this room. In 13th century Brittany with this depraved man who had children that no one knew he had. And, Let's not. Stop your imagination uh, right there. You Come back. Want, yeah, you might want to stop that. Bad things would happen. We'll leave it at that. And he disposed of the bodies in numerous ways when he was done with them. And in his own confession, he testified that when the said children were dead, he kissed them and those who had the most handsome limbs and heads he held up to admire them, had their bodies cruelly cut open and took delight at the sight of their inner organs. And very often, when the children were dying, he sat on their stomachs and took pleasure in seeing them die and laughed. 
Okay, so that guy is obviously twirling his blue mustache and he is a true villain. I think we're lacking some important connections here. How does it get to be women? That's so interesting. No, it really is interesting that they're kind of connected, even though it went from children to wives. And it went from purely predatory behavior to this like idea of curiosity getting the better of you and like yeah that moral was kind of stuck in there yeah it's interesting but like you said he was writing to the nobility he was trying to teach these young maidens not to go snooping and not to open pandora's box or vase or whatever vase <laughs> her husband's skeleton closet Oh, is that where that comes from? Wouldn't that be cool? I hope so. I hope it is. Now it is. Now it is. See citation. Just kidding. <laughs> Cite your sources. I feel like Pearl may kind of be throwing the maidens under the bus a little bit. We're looking at their, you know, nosiness. But we're really not taking Bluebeard's depravity and or horrible character traits into consideration so much. I feel like we're kind of picking on the wrong person. Oh, definitely. And I think, you know, if you put your little psych hat on. You mean my tinfoil hat? No, 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 psych hat. Okay, I'm going to have to get one of those. Okay, yeah, like, so put your psych hat on. If you were going to diagnose Bluebeard with some kind of personality disorder. Yeah, these guys have the classic definition of narcissism narcissism that's a freud word i know that word (laughs) well do you know where freud got the word i do narcissus is a greek story Mm -hmm. and of course went into the romans took it as well and ovid wrote about it and there are a lot of variations to it do you know that one of the first documented forgeries was romans recreating greek statues and sculpture are you shocked Nope. Not at all, right? Okay, anyway, sorry. Like, we changed the name. It's not the same thing. Yeah, it's original. It's Juno, not Hera. Don't be ridiculous. In Greece, were we to discuss Narcissus, what would our story look like? So Narcissus was a man of extreme beauty. He was the most handsome man that had ever lived. He was very fond of spurning all of his suitors. He thought he was the bee's knees. Well, he was. Have you seen the guy? I mean, Caravaggio did that like crazy. Yeah, well, Caravaggio. <laughs> so I'm going to combine a few of the versions of the story. One of the men that he spurned was Emmaus. Emmaus was heartbroken, and he called out to the gods to help him seek revenge. And the god Nemesis, the goddess of revenge, heard him. So she was watching. One day, when Narcissus was out hunting... He started hearing a noise from the woods. He called out, Who's there? And he heard back, Who's there? And this continued to happen. He would hear a noise, and he would call out, and he would hear his words back to him. And this was the nymph Echo. She was previously cursed or punished by the goddess Hera or Juno to not be able to speak, because guess what she was doing? Was she doing Zeus? Everybody was doing Zeus. I know, and I feel like we don't all have curses put upon us. Like, there have to be some people left that didn't do Zeus. Not really. Yeah, not really. Okay. So, he's out hunting, and Echo is kind of following him around. She's just fallen deeply in love with him. And she starts to become frustrated that she's not able to speak to him. And she comes out and tries to embrace him. And he throws her off. What is this? No. And she's like, what is this? No. Exactly. And she goes off and feels terrible and cries. And Nemesis is watching. She sees this horrible thing that's happened to Echo. And Nemesis previously heard Emmaus' calls. And so Nemesis leads Narcissus to a stream. And he's thirsty. He's been hunting all day. He leans over to take a drink of water. And he sees the most beautiful thing he has ever seen in his life. His own reflection. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, huh, I look great, and moves on with his life. No. So he says, oh, look, that is the most beautiful thing ever. I have him. And he reaches in to touch him, and his hands are only wet, and he reaches to kiss him, and same thing. And he stands there, not eating, not drinking, obsessed with his own reflection, until he withers away and his beauty is drained from him and he dies. Some versions of the legend, he kills himself. 
That would be more our speed. Echo also withers away until she's just the voice. Right, she's just the Echo. She just retreats into the glens. From his body slash blood is where we get the Narcissus flower. Let's paint with broad strokes here. What are some of Narcissus's biggest flaws, would you say? Like, what are his most damning traits? Well, he thinks he is the best of the best. He just has this grandiose sense of self-importance. Right, and he is obsessed with his own image. That's that's a problem for right. him. That doesn't Feels work that out he's well. Special is incapable of giving his love to others. He needs it all for himself. He needs others to love him to make him feel great, but he doesn't want to give anything in return. He believes everyone else is beneath him, and so he fits with the kind of medical diagnosis of narcissism personality disorder. I wonder, I wonder what scholar, what sagely, sagely psychologist, psychiatrist could have brought these two phenomena together, this personality disorder with this perfect myth. Who would do that, Jacob? Is it your favorite? Is it my favorite? Yes. Yes, it's Freud. Now, Freud is the person that kind of coined the term in his essay on it, but there's been a lot of research on narcissism since then. The criteria is pretty clear-cut. You know, they have a pattern of grandiosity, a need for admiration, and a lack of empathy. And they have some of these traits. You don't have to have all of them. So, you know, a grandiose sense of self-importance, preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success and power, beauty, ideal love, that they are special and unique. They require excessive admiration, a sense of entitlement, interpersonally exploitive and lacking empathy and unwilling to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others. And they can also be envious of others, believe that others are envious of them. And of course, the arrogant and haughty behavior. Haughty is one of those words that I use that I'm never quite sure of the definition of. Like, I know what it means. I know the feeling of the word, but I could not. I just like saying haughty. Haughty. And their excessive self-love is not actually, like, any judgment on their own character. It's their preoccupation and infatuation with the image that they project. Right. It so fits with the story. They are obsessed with the reflection, the image of themselves, not necessarily themselves. If you are completely focused on your outward projection... You need other people to reflect it back to you, right? Like, because you're not walking around in a hall of mirrors. I mean, maybe some of them are. That's probably on a checklist somewhere. Makes me think of American Psycho. Yes. Yes, it does. He's a narcissist. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's a great example. Yes. But yeah, they need that reflection from other people, that constant adulation. But, you know, one part of it is that they really have really poor insight into what's going on. While they can know that they're, like, a little arrogant, they can know that they feel that they're better than other people, they don't really understand what's under the surface. Right, so, like, if they try to do self-analysis, they reach toward their reflection and just get their hands wet. Basically. Right. Okay. Wow. This is like such the best metaphor ever. I'm kind of just like loving the metaphor right now. And initially, a lot of people really, 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 really like narcissists when they first meet them. Yeah, because they have this like big personality. They think they're awesome. You're like, you're awesome. And they're like, you're awesome. You're like, I am awesome, but you're more awesome. Yeah. And it's like this big, everybody's great party. And that lasts for a hot minute. Over time, their likability diminishes. When you like start to see more of their shallowness, I guess, like when you start to understand that they're totally surface people, and they're very critical once you get to be in their inner circle. Yeah, they have like game playing, infidelity, high levels of unrestricted sociosexuality. It's a big part of it. Again, think American Psycho. Yeah, like, really, just keep thinking American Psycho. So, is it ever good to be a narcissist? Are you, are you ever going to get a button that says, I'm a narcissist, and that's okay? All of these things, people can have the personality traits as a part of them. So, like, when someone says, 
oh, my CD, you know, that means they're just really neat, need things in order. That's a personality trait. Right. And it becomes a disorder when it affects your everyday life and when there are problems associated with it. So I want those people to start saying, if you listen to this podcast and you have a habit of saying, I'm OCD, just say I'm OC, okay? Because you don't have the disorder. (laughs) But so those relationship partners, you know, they like that grandiosity, but they also start to kind of have to fade into the background they cannot be number one or number two or three or four or five in this relationship they have to be all the way at the bottom this narcissistic person has to take center stage they're there to serve as a reflection of the narcissist desired image so they need to sort of you know repeat everything that the narcissist says back to them like i think i'm a really good person they need to be like you're a really good person So really, the ideal partner for a narcissist is an echo, someone who has no needs of their own and wants to do nothing more than love them and can't really say anything except the prescribed dialogue. Yeah, and so that really fits in with what's been developed as a relationship cycle, and it's kind of related to a cycle of abuse with narcissists and their relationship partners. So there are three stages in this cycle, and the first being kind of related to what we've been talking about, this over-evaluation. Right, or idealization is Mm. another term that's used commonly. Who came up with that term? Freud. I like this episode. And it's the first phase, and it's like the person that they've targeted or chosen to be their partner is ascribed these fantastic qualities because the narcissist believes that even their attention is golden. If I like someone, they must be awesome. Because I only like awesome things because I'm awesome. Very self-contained reasoning. Sort of an overflow of the narcissist's own libido onto the object. Who said that? Freud. I know all the answers. Let's do some psychologists that are not Freud. Freud. So Kohut was another one that did a lot of research into narcissism. And he talked about it as being part of that mirroring, this over-evaluation, where you depend on others for that building up, to get that narcissistic supply. And without that source of the supply, that constant positive feedback, then the narcissist is just going to disintegrate. I feel like narcissists are sort of biologically addicted, nature-nurtured, into... Mm. There's a lot of research on the nature-nurture of narcissism. But I feel like they're sort of nature-nurtured into behaving almost like people who are addicted to substances. Oh yeah, definitely, and... People that are narcissists are more likely to have like substance abuse problems, gambling problems, etc. Yeah, I read a lot on gambling and narcissists, which I think is very interesting. Kernberg mentioned that the narcissist is enhancing their partner by projecting onto them and denying those unwanted characteristics. And why would they do that? Well, because they see their partner as a reflection of themselves. Okay, so they want everything to be perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Yes, and so they'll seek partners that make them look better, you know, that have high station or high status. That makes sense. Well, that lasts for a hot minute, again. That's the technical term, hot yeah, minute. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it lasts a hot minute. And then we come to the devaluing stage. Because invariably, people are going to, you know, be people. And, you know, have some flaws and some things you're not so crazy about. And so in those things... Wait, we don't have any flaws. Obviously we don't, but we're the exception. That's right. Every- can you please give us some positive feedback, guys? Guys, can you just please write some nice things on our on our review page, please? going to disintegrate without my narcissistic supply. Oh, uh, yeah. The internet's so good for narcissists. As people, you know, betray their humanity to their narcissistic partner, they... Or start to see the narcissist, you know, don't tell them, but flaws. The narcissist responds by entering the devaluation stage. And that's whenever they start reflecting those negative qualities onto them. Instead of doing the positive things, like, you're awesome, you're awesome, you're awesome. You're like, why the hell did you do that? I'm not feeling so great today, so you must have made me feel not so great today. Yes. Why? And so that ultimately leads to discarding. Or narcissistic withdrawal. So through all of this, they start to lose their narcissistic supply from their partner. And there's no point in having them around anymore if they're not going to supply you with the goods. 
Right. Like, why would you keep your drug dealer on speed dial if he didn't have pot anymore? Because we're, we're just friends. Oh, you're just friends. Okay, and yeah. Well, you're nicer than most people. When the novelty wears off, they really just become completely disenchanted. And a lot of times they'll find someone else who can offer them a new supply of new awesome with no human flaws for a hot minute. And they will just, you know, replace one with the other. They'll just find that new person and be like, oh, well, you I've never felt this way before. That's a classic narcissist thing, by the way. Oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, I've never felt this way before. I just didn't know what love was until I met you. And then since they've obviously never felt this way before, that old partner must have been a lie and a mistake and they need to get away from them as quickly as possible. Yeah, and so you can see how this disorder is definitely reflected in the narcissist story. And then it's somewhat related to the Bluebeard story as well. But you know that moral at the end of the Bluebeard story said that this happened a long time ago, girls. You just keep your nose in the... Not his business. Not business. (laughs) And you'll be fine, because this shit's not going to happen again. Nah. We're all good. Nah. Nah. Just kidding. Bluebeards are still a thing. The term bluebeard, while taken from this legend, has become the equivocal word for like the male black widow. Definitely like the moniker of people who kill multiple partners, usually for financial gain, and it's almost exclusively applied to males now interestingly if you do research um, on historical murder cases you'll see a lot of women referred to as lady bluebeards before the term came about so now it's interesting that we're defining it in the inverse because we're more familiar with the black widow because everyone loves snapped right who doesn't love snapped i don't one of my friends the other day she was having a really bad day i was like look if you get your own snapped episode i will totally be one of the talking heads are they gonna blur your face and change your voice um, god willing in the creek don't rise okay only if robert stack hosts it robert stack is my spirit animal and rod sterling Look, johnny cash was your spirit animal. i have lots of spirit animals i have a spirit menagerie they're all like old kind of gruff men this explains a lot i know i have like a An unsolved mystery, kind of, actually, speaking of Robert Stack. So I googled Bluebeard murderers, and I was confronted with one James B. Watson. Some people think that he was married as many as 40 times and committed at least 25 murderers, but he was only active from 1918 to 1920. Very quick. And he was sentenced on seven counts of murder, which he confessed to. And he said he'd been married only 19 times. Oh, only 19. Only 19. God, this makes me think of Uncle Dinky. Uncle Dinky. Yeah, my uncle. He's been married like, what, seven times? Some of those to the same woman. I think it's eight times to seven different women. Yeah, I think those are his stats, but I'm not certain. You come from such good stuff. I know, honey, I do. Pedigree. So he was all about going on nature walks with his wives and he would, you know, push them off the boat or push them over the side of a waterfall or drown them or bludgeon them to death or various and sundry. So all of his wives were like really clumsy. All except seven, which he apparently actually did murder. He, he had a penchant for going out into nature with his wife and then killing them there, which I thought was interesting because it's like, location specific and you have to wonder if there's something triggering about that but here's my my question and why i think he may be a good candidate for a bluebeard according to two sources i looked at he was a hermaphrodite really really and you have to wonder if there was some kind of trigger like they found out his secret or they like laughed at it like you know this is not a time where this is common knowledge you don't I don't know. Like, is that the secret? Is that the skeleton in the closet that sends him over the edge into a murderous rage? I could definitely see that. It could be. I can't find a lot of scholarly writing about it, so I'm going to leave that as a big question mark. But he definitely killed a lot of women. So that's that's true. And that's, he married them. And he married them. And he may have had a secret. We don't know. Interesting. Interesting. Well, so I've got another one for you. Okay. Major Raymond Lucinba. La Simba, the lion. And he was also known as Robert Rattlesnake James. If I had the choices between those two names, I'd definitely go with the second one. Go by Rattlesnake. Can you just call me Rattlesnake? And so he was a big fan of insurance. 
He believed in having his he wa- he belongings protected. Yeah, and his spouses and his family to oh, you know, have okay. good insurance to make sure if anything happened to them, you know, they'd be covered. Jake from State Farm? Yeah, like the State Farm people just pop up. So, first person of his relation that happened to just pass away was his nephew. And just two weeks after he had become his nephew's beneficiary, he died in a car accident. Well, that sounds like some rotten luck. Then you know, he had several wives. He have several nephews, too? Yeah, probably did. And with his third wife, they got in a car wreck. And she had a head injury. But it wasn't really consistent with a car accident. It was more consistent with the bloody hammer found in his back seat. Oops. But she survived with no memory of the crash. And while she was recovering, a miracle, one would say, she drowned in the bathtub. That's not a miracle. That's, in fact, the opposite of a miracle. That's really rotten luck. So wife number four started to catch on to this. She saw a little trend, and she refused to sign any sort of insurance documents. Smart girl. She must have read... Peralt's morals. Oh, wait. No, they actually didn't say don't sign insurance forms. Should have. And so on the day of the marriage, he started the annulment process. His next wife, Mary Bush, did get a life insurance policy for $10,000. Mary Bush was not so bright. I wonder if she was related to the Bushes. Well, wait for this. In 1935, Mary... Uh, became pregnant, and he insisted that she have an abortion. And so while it was illegal at the time, he convinced her that he needed to tape her eyes and mouth closed to protect the abortionist identity. He gave her a pint of whiskey, tied her down to the kitchen table, and put her feet in a box with two rattlesnakes named Lethal and Lightning. Mary was bitten three times, but she just wasn't dying fast enough. And so he drowned her in the bathtub. Murder weapon, a bathtub, and rattlesnakes. This is going to screw up any game of Clue we ever play. In the bathtub. With With a rattlesnake. The police were like, oh, it was an accident. How? But you know what? The insurance companies, they they were hot on his trail. How does one accidentally get bitten three times by rattlesnakes and then drown? It was an accident. All right, Jake from State Farm, I know your game. Well, Jake from State Farm is the guy that figured this out. And so in 1942, he was convicted of the murder, and he was the last man to die by hanging in California. Some stories do have a happy ending. (laughs) So Jake the Rattlesnake from State Farm is a good one. Were you listening? Sort of. I have ADD. But I think that I may have won... Who meets all the criteria? He's hitting all the check marks for I, I think so. Bluebeard, Narcissus. This is our prime case. Coup de gras, yes. His name is Henri Landreau. Wait, is he French too? He is French. Little Henri grew up with his mother reading him the Bluebeard legend and decided he would act it out when he grew up. I don't know if that's true, but I like to imagine that it's so. He grew up in France. He was born in 1869. They lived in Paris. They were a middle-class family, and he had kind of a modest upbringing, but a very good education. He was educated by monks. I bet they, like, hit his knuckles all the time. I bet they did, too. And then he went into the military, where there's more knuckle wrapping, and um, did very well. Ended up being a sergeant. And then he married his cousin. Ooh, very Poe of him. Very Poe, yes. Named Remy. And they kind of worked honest jobs, but he did a little fraud and a little robbery on the side. I mean, you know, just to keep the coffers full. And at one point, an employer of his absconded with some money. Henri's money. Yes, he was owed money by this person. And he just kind of decided that anything he did from here on out was justifiable revenge. Huh. One thing we didn't mention was how easily narcissists are wounded and how they respond to being wounded. Yes, the narcissistic wound. It happens fast, and it is nursed for a long time, and nurse it Henri did. He did go to prison, briefly, for some scamming and frauding and things, and then he was released, and it's kind of assumed that he was released to go serve in World War I. I'm mean, going to guess he did not. He did not <laughs> yeah. so much do the serving in the World War One. 
another funny thing was happening as a result. World War One. I guess that he was like the only man there. He was the only civilian left in France. He was the only eligible bachelor in Paris. Basically, but he wasn't technically eligible because he was still married, but he wasn't advertising that. Yeah. But he was advertising. What do you mean? Like Craigslist? Basically. There was like a single section in the newspaper and he would advertise himself as being available for marriage and a nice man of good means, well-meaning intention, matrimony, etc. And he used a variety of aliases and he would start corresponding with women. And when he found someone who would make a good wife target, he would, you know, develop a relationship with them. So what kind of relationship? Well, like... One of his wives, and I use my inverted commas, there was some red tape and he was like, to hell with the system, we shall just live together and be married in our hearts. By the way, can you make me your beneficiary on this insurance policy? (laughs) Like, I don't know how many women he actually legally married, but he was very much on the, like, we should move in together, come to my house with this lovely oven. But anyway, we'll get there. So his first victim was Madame Couchet, and she was a 39-year-old widow who worked in a lingerie store in Paris. And she had a 16-year-old son named André. I mean, I guess this does not go too well for them. No, it doesn't. They met, you know, in the single section of the newspaper, and she was a widower. And she was very concerned about how she would live out her days with no man to help her out. And she was barely getting by in the lingerie shop. And she was very concerned about all this. And so she was a woman in want of a husband. And despite this falling out they had, where she asked her family to come with her while she went to him to work things out, that resulted in them rifling through all of his things, finding a locked chest. He was really trying to be Bluebeard. He really was. But in the locked chest, there were not bodies. Well, that's disappointing. I know, but there were a lot of correspondence with other women, photos and things of that nature. And so her family came to her and he's like, he's kind of playing you, B. And she's like, it's all right. Ain't no big thing. I love him. We'll make it work. He should move into my house. And so he does. He moves into her house. And then she and Andre are never seen again. And so he inherits her monies. And he goes on to continue this ruse. Circulating a variety of different aliases. Forging documents along the way. Committing a little fraud. A little scam. You know. Whatever. And he moves into this big villa in Gambe. He moves this young woman in. And one of the neighbors reports that... Shortly after she disappears, he sees this thick black smoke that smells absolutely wretched coming from the chimney. Did they elect a new pope? That would not be a new pope, sir. Popes get white smoke. And this kind of repeats, you know, rent, lather, rinse, repeat. Then finally one woman goes missing and they talk to another woman's family who's also gone missing and they realize that they've both gone to Gambai and then they realize, like, Maybe there's some relationship, but he had a different name, and it's so confusing. And so he's, like, tracked through the streets by one of the women. And they go back and ask the shopkeeper what his name is, and they're able to track him down that way. So police come out, and they're like, okay, obviously a lot of women who are missing have been at this villa and nowhere else. This is the last place where all of these women on this list were seen. We're going to need to check it out. So do, do they find, like, a basement full of bodies? Well, they do find bodies. They dig up the garden, and they find the skeletons of two dogs. No. Actually, yes, they had belonged to one of his former mistresses, and apparently when he dispatched her, he was like, and you two, I'm not dealing with your shit. Doggy murder. That's terrible. I know, but they look, and they look, and they look, and they cannot find any bodies anywhere except these dogs. And he's not really going to get the kind of punishment they think he deserves for the two dogs. So they come back and they do a second search and they were like, you know, I just got a real funny feeling about that oven. So they open it and they find little shards of bone that are easily identified as human and fastening from contemporary women's clothing. This is like the Sausage King of Chicago. It is. It's just like it. Except it's more than one woman. <laughs> Remember, they find the little bones. They find the pieces of clothing. They're able to identify that it was a person that mm-hmm. was killed. Well, in this case, it was 11. And when he went to court, he just absolutely refused to work with anybody. He was not answering any questions. 
they ask him, like, what is the nature of your relationship with Madame Cochet? And he'd be like, sir, I am a gallant man. I cannot speak on the nature of my relationship with that woman, as she is not here to give her permission for me to tell it. Ah, so he was just, like, stonewalling them completely. Absolutely stonewalling. Why was that his defense? Well, he believed that because the court had found him sane to stand trial, they were basically saying, and you're innocent. Oh, so, like, no sane person could do that? Yeah, and I actually kind of agree. But staying to stand trial does not mean of sound mind. <laughs> he is just playing in this messed up logic. Oh, yeah, it's very stilted. So he's found guilty of 11 murders. Not shocked. Not shocked either. The trial only lasts about a month. About two months later, he's being held in prison, and they come and they're like, hey, by the way, you're going to die today. <laughs> I love the French. I know, like, they don't let people know in advance. About, like, when their executions are going to be, which I think is amazing. Well, and and to add to the awesome Frenchness, they offer him the glass of brandy. And he says, no, I do not care for it. And then to keep it French, they ask for a confession. No, I will not dignify that with a response. To keep it even more French, they bring a good Catholic priest in for last rites. And he says, no, I do not have anything to say to you. He will not attend mass. He does not want the brandy. He's not given a confession. So he just goes out and he shakes his lawyer's hands and then... Guillotine. Guillotine! Even more French. And invented by a French doctor. That's the best way one could kill somebody. I kind of think it is, though. If if you do it right. Yeah. To sharpen it. Yeah. They weren't fond of sharpening. I heard that some executioners took incredible pride in the maintenance of their machines. And it was like... A badge of honor, kind of, to have these really well-oiled, well-honed machines. And, like, your time was reported along with the game. No, you're right. But if it was an unsavory character, they would intentionally not sharpen the blade. That's so French. Yup. Ugh, okay. So he turns to his lawyers and he's like, I will be brave. And they ask him as he mounts the platform, would you like to make a statement? And he says, I am insulted by the question. He's very insulted. He's very French. (laughs) But he did offer a little trinket to his lawyers in return for their troubles defending him. It's also pretty fucking French. It was like a bottle of wine? (laughs) It was art. Okay. (laughs) Um, He offers them some artwork he's done while he's been imprisoned. And it's a drawing of his oven that he had specially installed in his house. His, like, incinerator. Basically. They are like, thanks. And then... That's weird. Thanks, Gacy. (laughs) I will sell this on eBay. Uh, (laughs) Nice clown painting. Yeah. So, he goes to his death. Uh, Interestingly, his head can be viewed at the Hollywood Museum of Death. Of course. If you're interested. So let us we'll definitely post that on Twitter. Yeah. And if you happen to go and actually see the head jealous, we're one jealous and two, we would love for you to call our just a story hotline and tell us all about how creepy it was. 50 years later, someone finally opens the frame in which the artwork was presented by Landrieu to his attorneys. And what should they find? But a written confession. Oh, man. I killed them all and burned their bodies in the oven. Signed, Henri Vendroux. That's so French. That is so French. <laughs> we say all this lovingly because... We are very... French-ish, yeah. So this guy does just hit every check mark. Okay, talk to me about why he's a narcissist. So he used other people. He didn't care what he did with them. He had his own like sense of logic, his own ideas of right and wrong so unlike a sociopath he had an idea of right and wrong but he exempt he kind of played by his own rules he exempt himself from that code of conduct because he was special he was above that right and like i believe that this may be the most literal incarnation of the discard phase ever (laughs) some serious discarding also there's an element of greed narcissism there's some writing about that and you know, he did this kind of through greed, just trying to get money. And there's just no conscious about it. Well, one thing I thought was interesting in reading about him was that he did take lovers. 
and he would have women around who did not offer any financial gain and he'd still kill them. Like when he got tired of them, when they kind of got inconvenient, he was just like, yeah, oven. Yeah. So convenient, the oven. Oh, that oven is just so tempting. It's like right there. <laughs> Where are my snakes? <laughs> that was not a murder of convenience. That was one of the more elaborate ruses I've ever heard of also. I can just see that happening in Texas. <laughs> I know, right? What did it happen in Texas? California. I'm oh, so, so disappointed. Sad. Uh, disappointed. Uh, it's just, I wish it happened in Texas. Also, I think his behavior during the trial really betrayed some narcissism. Oh, for sure. He was just above all of this. And like his need to control came through until the very last moment of his life. I'm insulted that you would even ask. Yet I have made a statement on my terms inside of my artwork that I presented as a gift. That's my statement, but I'm not going to give you my statement because I don't choose you. Now, as a bluebeard, I think that he has a lot of boxes checked as well. The secret cabinet with all of his dirty laundry in it. you know, All related to his wives yeah. or other lovers. And the family is even there when like, it's been discovered. And this idea of putting out this lure in the community. Personal ads are like him walking through the town and picking a wife. It seems like he has a lot in common with this guy, I have to say. Oh, and... He had this glorious beard. It was like red is actually what color it was. But, um, so he's a red beard. Right, if we're going to get literal. But he did convince the executioner not to shave his face, which normally if you had facial hair like that, they would shave your face. And he talked him out of it. So he was very proud of his beard. Isn't that on, still on his head? Part of it. <laughs> so just as our great French folklorist mentioned... This isn't happening anymore, but that actually kind of fits with now. This is not as frequently happening as it did, you know, 50, 60 years ago. I looked into it, and there are some isolated cases. Like, there's this scuba diver thing that happened. Like you can, But that was he did it for one woman. One woman. It wasn't a pattern. And there's, like, a doctor who killed his wife. But I don't know if he did it for money, but he was definitely a narcissist. Much more common years ago. Yeah, I found like five that were active from like 1900 to 1920. And you have to wonder with that kind of cluster, if it was just like in the water, just something in the like zeitgeist of that moment. You know what? I have a theory. Men did become more of a commodity because of the wars. Oh, at that time. Yeah. With World War One. So that may have been like why you saw a rash of bluebeards, which sounds like Something you'd buy cream for. You might want to get that seen by a doctor. <laughs> Call the Just a Story hotline if you have a rash of bluebeards. And also, you know, nowadays, it'd be so hard to hide things like that just with technology. Yeah, like people are kind of, people keep tabs on people a little bit better. You would have Facebook profile pictures together at the very least. Although you still hear those stories with, guy had two families, <laughs> things like that. Yeah, but less. I will say less. Even in my lifetime, it's less. Oh, definitely. Lifetime channels just like slow down on those made-for-TV movies yeah, and documentaries. It's all about like, I met my stalker online. Don't answer the email. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Human trafficking. Also, I'm going to add another layer to my wild speculation here and just say that divorce is a lot easier to get nowadays. Yeah, sure. I mean, that has to be part of it, too. If you're forced to either choose to divorce your wife or murder her. Yeah, you can discard them by just divorcing them. Yeah. And you don't get nearly as much trouble for that. You know, I would say that a lot of these ideas have really transitioned over to a new kind of abusive relationship. And that'd be something called gaslighting. Do you know where the term comes from? Carbon monoxide poisoning? Mm, no, not really. It actually comes from a play. Okay, my guess was so much more interesting. So it was a play in 1938. They made it into a movie. Ingrid Bergman was in it. I love her. And you know what? Vincent Price played one of these main characters on Broadway. I would have paid good money. Good money, sir. This man is trying to convince his wife and others that she is insane by manipulating just little things going on in the house, insisting that she's, you know, she's crazy. What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. Why would that be happening? And that she was remembering things incorrectly or delusional when she points out these changes. 
The term gaslight comes about whenever the husband was using the gaslights in the attic, searching for hidden treasure that he didn't want her to know about. And when he would use those lights, the lights downstairs would dim. Mm-hmm. And she noticed it, brings it up, and he's like, you're, you're crazy. What are you talking about? And so play goes on. It's a really interesting idea, story. But it's related to this person really manipulating their partner into almost thinking they're insane. It's very yellow wallpaper. Yes. We're going to mention that every other episode. Apparently, it really stuck with both of us. <laughs> The term gaslighting comes from that play. Well, what I thought it was, was making people think they're crazy. So you would leave the gas on and they would start to feel crazy. Like That's what I was like my association. Because what I thought gaslighting was, was like this kind of willful manipulation of people to create the illusion that things they are seeing are not real. And make them feel crazy because of it. Like seeing, experiencing, remembering. You're really not that far off at all. The important part of it is there's an unconscious element as well. And people like narcissists, like we talked about, are your prime suspects for doing things like this. And the whole point is undermining that victim's belief system and kind of replacing it with another. And so first it can start off as projecting this unconscious content to the victim's. So you can evoke these disturbing emotions, low self-esteem, cognitive discontrol by causing the individual to question his own ability or for thinking, perceiving, and reality testing. What's reality testing? So that's doing what's real and what's not. So in like my scenario, like what I think of when I think of gaslighting is like a husband saying to a wife or a wife saying to a husband like, hey, would you please pay that bill today? And then he comes home and she's like, hey, did you pay that bill? And he's like, you never asked me to do that. She's like, yeah, we were standing right in the kitchen. He's like, that never happened. And so that is a form of gaslighting. It's something called, this is the technical term, a double whammy. Really? Yeah. And so one of the examples on a psych textbook I read way too much of was like a mom saying like, everything you do turns to shit. And then the daughter's like, God, mom, that's really harsh. And the mom's like, you have no sense of humor. Even if she had said, yeah, you're right, mom, she'd be like, where's your fighting spirit? Like, where you just, honest to God, can't win. Yeah, so you're doing two things. You know, you're affecting their self-being, their self-perception, but also, like, doing it again in a different way on the other side. Where it does make you question, like, oh, is she really serious? Do I have no sense of humor? Right, right. And so by doing these things, people become easier to manipulate. If any argument you offer is invalidated and just ignored like that or kind of subverted even. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's important to point out that this is not like a control of outward behavior. It is very much a psychological control. Now, of course, that can go into what you're doing. But it's not like making someone do something. Can you kind of give me a a real world example of that? Because I'm not sure I follow that. So kind of an example again, that textbook was related to, in a way, like a brainwashing kind of element. And where you can threaten people into doing things like if you're a cult leader or a dictator versus this is more of a manipulation from a psychological level. Okay, so like a cult leader would be like, God wants you to do this, like kind of bolster their own authority or like, or if like, you don't do this, she'll, no one will like you. Yeah. Or even like threaten people from like a dictator kind of standpoint. Okay. So like, if you don't do this, I will kill you and your family. Yeah. Very real consequences. That's the distinction between the two. It's that this is a very psychological manipulation. I guess like in a manipulation, I feel like there almost has to be like a bait and switch. What are they afraid will happen if they don't do it? An important element of this is the projection element. That is related to a transfer of kind of painful and poten- or potentially painful mental conflicts. Projection is a defensive function. You know, it's one of the de- psychological defenses that we have. So projection is like, if I say to you, you're in such a bad mood today because I'm in a bad mood today. That's projection? Well, yeah. No, that's right. And so... Also involved in this is introjection. Which and that's is the, where you put exclamation marks everywhere. It could be. Or it's, it's kind of like the opposite of projection. And so it's whenever somebody 
really takes in those ideas of somebody else. Like, I must be in a bad mood today. Right. Like, they're acting horrible, so maybe I'm in a bad mood and I'm putting that out into the world and they're picking up on it and it must be my fault. Right. And so this is another uh, psychological defense and it can be positive. So if you're around, like, good people that and think highly of themselves and are trying to save the world or whatever and you interject that you take those ideas and put them on yourself that's good thing but in this kind of situation where someone's trying to manipulate you and you've got these really negative ideas coming around and you take those and you put them on yourself that's obviously a negative thing so instead of trying to save the world you'll be like no i really am shit yeah and so you know freud Freud. Yes, he described it as a mature defense mechanism. Like, like it could be a positive thing, and it can be protective. Or protecting yourself with a positive group, or if you, let's say, of course, he's going to talk about the parents have like missing parents. The mother. Yes, you can kind of interject those ideas of the parents that you know and cause all sorts of problems. But anyway. <laughs> This is all combined into what Melanie Klein, who is a psychiatrist that did a lot of work on this, into projective identification. So that's when someone is in a close relationship and part of that self is forced onto another person. And so we're all going to take on traits of our partners. That's normal. And that's kind of one way we survive. Okay. Because we've, we've obviously taken on each other's good traits. Just the good ones. Just the good ones. None of the bad ones. Just the good ones. But so this is, again, it's a normal part of our psyche development. You know, Freud said that the ego and superego are constructed by interjecting external behavioral patterns into a subject's own person. So it's a normal thing unless you're... Your source is corrupt. Yes. Yes, exactly. So it's good to assimilate your identity... From the way others around you treat you and conduct yourselves to a degree. But we really don't need to worry about any of this, right? Happened a long time ago, ladies. Just keep your noses out of business. Yeah, it's, it's just a story. 